0: Hi everyone, I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. Our first study comes from the University of Barcelona in Spain, and it's about vitamin B12 deficiency. It can trigger inflammation. A new study has identified a compelling link between vitamin B12 deficiency and chronic inflammation, which is associated with a range of health problems, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and neurodegenerative disorders. This was published in the peer-reviewed journal of Science of Food and Agriculture. The research examined the effects of circulating B12 concentrations on the levels of two key inflammatory markers in both humans and mice. Now, the team of researchers in Spain have investigated the effects of B12 on the levels of these two molecules in the body which promote inflammation, interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein, I've mentioned both many times, how by taking the B-complex and vitamin C, you can lower those. And we don't want chronic inflammation, as I've explained on numerous occasions. Inflammation is one of the hallmarks of foundational disease, meaning upon which uh, diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, um, all forms of inflammation in your tissue, It's caused by chronic inflammation. Now, chronic means something that we do on a daily basis. And the reality is, most people eat the same foods, the same way, the same amounts on a regular basis. Not good. So we should vary our diet, and we should try to shift to a healthy plant-based diet. Or second to that would be a healthy Mediterranean diet, excluding the meat, and have fish, but exclude the meat and the dairy and sugars. That will help turn off inflammation. But B12 every day, especially if you're vegan, is very important. And I suggest you simply supplement with 500 milligrams to one milligram of B12 per day. From Harvard Medical School comes a study about, this was a clinical trial, and a vegetable extract was shown to treat autism better than drugs. I repeat, one vegetable extract was better treating autism than any drug. This is in Harvard Medical School. A clinical trial that has shown that one vegetable extract may have astonishing positive effects on those with autism. Broccoli. Yes. The U.S. Center for Disease Control tells the world that there is no treatment for autism spectrum disorder. Hmm. Well, okay, good. I guess that's the end of the story. Oh, one little side effect. Um, down in Washington, D.C., uh, about 15, no 17 years ago, there was an international scientific uh, symposium. I was one of the keynote speakers. I was there to talk about how women can turn off hot flashes, night sweats, uh, thinning of the hair and eyebrows, uh, gaining weight without extra calories going in, fatigue, etc. Many of the multiple symptoms of of menopause. i done a year-long study meeting every week with 500 women, and we proved it. I had a 94% success rate in this study, meaning virtually every single menopausal symptom was reversed. In fact, eight of the women reverted to premenopausal conditions. Well, I didn't do that. In fact, that 22-minute was taken up instead. I invited the first person I vetted out on stage before thousands of scientists it was a young gentleman. And uh, I asked him his name, and he told his name, and his father and mother, both New York City police officers living over in Brooklyn, uh, were there. And his name was Jonathan Ortega. The Ortegas are just wonderful human beings, by the way. Um, I just can't, I, I can't emphasize enough If you want an example of the right type of parenting, they're it. But he had been damaged early in life. He was normal until he got his vaccines. Then he regressed. Okay. So over 16 months, they were part of a study. And lo and behold, he comes out, and he starts reading little cards. And these cards were Outstanding Student of the Week at a very prestigious school in New York. I asked him his hobbies, what he liked to do, he liked music, he liked preparing meals for his family. And then I said, what makes all this unique? Because everyone's kind of looking, at, like, what's this about? This isn't about menopause. I said, no, this is about a person who had full-blown autism, could not speak uttered, but couldn't uh, form a cohesive sentence, and uh, he was on multiple medications. However, by lifestyle and behavior modification no medicines, we were able to completely reverse his autism spectrum disorder. He was not just a normal child, he was an extremely brand child. And he was a teenager then. It was interesting because I then brought out a woman who had full-blown Alzheimer's, hadn't, well, she was not in good shape when her sister brought her to the uh, brain study that I was doing. And 16 months later, she came out on stage and was reading their very technical data, something that a person with advanced Alzheimer's can't do. And I brought different people out that day showing how lifestyle behavior could reverse these conditions. It was interesting because when I said, if anyone's interested in my protocols, because I've been here this morning listening to you talk about how you want money to do stem cell research, well, how about a whole human being as biochemistry has changed? Including the stem cells. Well, about 500 of them came out into the corridor afterwards. Not one single scientist followed up. Not one. Nobody went to protocols. They were just interested in this phenomenon. Well, here we have broccoli. And broccoli helps because it contains what is called sulfurophane, meaning sulfur a molecule found in all the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cabbage, brussels, sprouts, asparagus, kale. And a groundbreaking study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, you don't get any more prestigious than that, found that broccoli sprout extract significantly improved the behavior of boys and men, those who most often suffer from autism. So, if you know someone with autism spectrum disorder or other neurological conditions similar to that. You might want to lower their oxidative stress and uh, and increase their antioxidant capacity and overcome the glutathione depression and give them NAD, uh, really help their turn their gut microflora into a healthier gut bacteria and give them B twelve also. That's very important. Methylated B12, methylated folic acid, but broccoli sprouts every day. And this was a placebo-controlled, randomized pilot study. So, 18 weeks, getting broccoli sprouts every day. 46% had noticeable improvements in social interactions. 42% had improvements in verbal communications. And more than half of all participants also showed a decrease in irritability, hyperactivity, and repetitive movements. Also, there's a, you have to understand, depends upon the weight and size of the person, how much broccoli you give them. But I would certainly say, make him a broccoli sprout salad each day. What's the healthiest time to eat dinner? Well, this is from the University of Laval in Quebec. And some people have said, well, it's at 4 o'clock, and others have said, it doesn't matter. It's all processed the same. No. It is not. And what we're finding is that what our body uses, the body total energy, meaning calorie intake, uh, are the same between 4 and 10. how the body processes this is different. And what we found in this study is that the best time, this is the school of nutrition there, the best time to eat your primary meal based upon the body's peripheral clocks other than the brain, uh, and consuming a high percentage of calories later during the day and into the night can produce a state where peripheral clocks are out of sync. So quite simply, the later you eat, the more likely you are to have circadian problems. Inability to sleep. The most ideal time, between 4 and 6 p.m. A small meal Your largest meal should be in the early afternoon at lunch. All right, 4 to 6. Well, 5 o'clock would be ideal. Later, the problems begin. And from the Buck Institute of Research on Aging, they've uncovered yet another link between NAD+, vitamin B3, and fertility. A woman's fertility normally decreases by her late 30s, with reproduction function eventually ceasing at menopause. It is known that a small molecule called nicotinamide adenide, dinucleotide, or NAD, plays a critical role in this decline. And Buck scientists have revealed how this happens and have identified potential new approaches to enhance reproduction longevity so you could get pregnant, healthy pregnancy, later in life if you're using NAD. And NAD, by the way, which is present in all your cells throughout the human body, begins to decline with age, and maintaining optimal levels is vital for key cellular function and organ health. And uh, so what we're seeing here is that it declines also in the ovaries, contributing to the uh, the natural decline over time of egg numbers combined with reduced egg quality both of which contribute to decreased fertility in females. To uncover the molecular mechanisms regulating ovarian NAD loss, first the researchers began by adding another piece of the puzzle, CD38, an enzyme known to be one of the main culprits in degrading NAD. And what happens during aging is that more of the CD38 is expressed leading to more degradation or decline in NAD, which accelerates the aging process. So, quite simply, two good things. If you want to be healthy and and fertile, take NADH each day. If you want to live a longer life, take NAD every day. All right? It's that simple. And finally, from the University College of Cork in Ireland, scientists discovered a link between Alzheimer's disease and the gut microbiota. Some years ago, I did a special for PBS stations, and it was about your brain. It was about slowing down the aging process, and it focused upon enhanced cognition, memory, uh, executive skills, being able to think. And I talked about all the different ways we can enhance that, with a good diet, turning off inflammation, repairing a lot of the dendrite uh, mechanisms in the brain with Alpha lipoic acid. But I also said that you have really two brains, one in the skull, all right, that we're familiar with, but another brain like in a condition in the intestine. And they communicate with each other. And the healthier the bacteria the, from the food that you eat, the healthier this brain, and hence healthier the immune system. Researchers have discovered the link between the gut microbiota, the gut bacteria, and Alzheimer's disease. For the first time, researchers have found that Alzheimer's symptoms can be transferred to a healthy young organism via the gut microbiota, confirming its role in the disease. So, that's a big deal. This was published in the peer reviewed journal Brain, and it can affect memory impairment. And uh, so, healthy bacteria turns off inflammation. Healthy bacteria stimulates a positive immune response. It's that simple. That's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. We have a lot to share today. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Null. Nice to have you with us today. We're heard all over the world. And as a result, I try to select topics that can inspire people to think about issues that they're facing, whether it's in Africa, Asia, anywhere. One of the issues that we must come to grips with is, is this just all coincidence that all these crises are happening at the same time? Or is there something more nefarious concerning this? To help answer this in part, I've I've selected a clip from Neil Oliver. Neil Oliver is a Historian, professor. He is also now kind of like a modern day Will Rogers. He gives us a lot to think about, but you have to listen without being distracted because he talks rather quickly and he's going to tell us about who really benefits when we don't. When things go south for us and we're suffering, who suddenly gets all the money and all the power? The public private partnerships something I've been extremely concerned about my entire career. So let's hear what he has to say on this issue, because then you start to understand Davos, the World Economic Forum, the Business Roundtable, the Atlantic Council, Tri- Trilateral Commission. You start to hear about all these groups that actually are interconnected in BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and Fidelity and Berkshire Hathaway, how they control the narrative. But from behind the scenes... They control corporations without their name ever being monitored. You'll see Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. You'll see Pfizer and, and, uh, and other brands. But who really controls the stock, controls the company and its future and his policies? If all the media are controlled by these companies, then whoever runs those companies, whatever their political persuasion, becomes the talking points in the media that day. So they can swing elections, and have. So isn't it time we understood who's really chained the world? Our world, our curriculum in schools, how college students are taught, automation, and the input now of uh, artificial intelligence, taking away our jobs? Well, if you take away everyone's job, What are people supposed to do? How are they supposed to live? Ah, they're stakeholders. They have the answer. You will own nothing. Well, who will own what I own? My car, my home. They will. Who are they? That's why you have to listen to Neil Oliver. Here we go.
1: The ship of states in a hell of a state. Rudderless might be the word or hold below the waterline. ULEZ is the latest squall, but only a part of something bigger and more sinister, looming all around. Uncontrolled migration is part of the same man-made weather system, part of making people angry and keeping people angry. Neither is what it appears to be. ULEZ is billed as a health measure, but it's just highway robbery and cover for the introduction of more surveillance cameras spectacularly vulnerable and temporary cameras, as it turns out. The migration is the free movement of people. Any British government that wanted to stem the flow or stop it would do so in a day, but the puppets pretending to govern aren't allowed to. I said the word to use about the ship of state might be rudderless, but that would be to fall for the carefully curated optical illusion It's being steered all right, but by officers none of us proles, chose and towards a destination none of us wants. Except, of course, the people who plotted the course long ago. No one with a brain thinks Rishi Sunak is running Britain, not even his colleagues. London Mayor Sadiq Khan, another homunculus in a suit from the boys department, loathes Britain and is laying waste to a once great city. And the puppet government is fine with it. Can sow's racial hatred and social unrest to accomplish the same destruction the Romans inflicted on Carthage by ploughing salt into fertile fields so nothing would ever grow there again. Keir Starmer and the fake Labour Party await their turn at the tiller, but all they'll do is shovel more coal into the furnaces, more speed towards the iceberg. It mystifies me that journalists interview these frauds as though they matter. I'd no more ask a senior politician what was going on in Britain than I would a character from a soap opera. Grant Sharps as Defence Secretary. Do me a favour. You might as well make one of my wolfhounds Defence Secretary. She'd have as much meaningful input to policy. At least Jessie's a real wolfhound. Don't fall for any of it. If I had the resources, I'd have it's never about what they say it's about plastered onto perpetually orbiting airships and projected onto the surface of the moon where everyone might see it. You, is the flicking tail on the elephant in the room, the monstrous beast that is Agenda 21, a plan for one world government, misrepresented as good news. For those thinking it's about the year 2021 and that we've missed the deadline, Agenda 21 is a plan for the whole of the 21st century. Whatever the puppet government and the puppet opposition say about anything is always and only to distract from the real plan and therefore the real threat to our freedom and way of life. The misdirection and downright lying infect and corrupt every aspect of life. Otto von Bismarck is credited with saying, the less people know about how laws and sausages are made, the better they'll sleep at night. That depends on whether you want to be asleep or awake, however uncomfortably. The sleepiness is everywhere. A long process of miseducation at school and a forced diet of propaganda for the rest of the time has, for instance, seen to the rearing of a population that either thinks money and the economy are too complicated for them to understand or has accepted the furry end of the lollipop stick handed to them by the powers that be. Inflation, what they would have us believe is to blame for the cost of living crisis, which is really a cost of lockdown crisis, is caused always and only by government working hand-in-glove with the banks to make themselves rich and everyone else poor. Inflation is caused always and only by the printing of money. Quantitative easing, as they have called it most recently, although dodgy types alighted on the tactic thousands of years ago to keep their subjects poor, is a transparent attempt to disguise a Ponzi scheme The Ponzi scheme being modern currencies, which is the conjuring into existence of money from nothing, which only banks are allowed to do. Every time they magic up more money, put more of the currency into circulation in whatever form, what they actually do, in fact, all they do is devalue any money you had in your pocket or in savings. This is deliberate. This is why excess money is created in the first place. Just as a for instance, since the creation of the so-called Federal Reserve in the United States in 1913, which is not federal, being a private company run for profit by secretive bankers and holds a reserve of precisely nothing, the actual value of the dollar has fallen by at least 90, if not actually 98%, Inflation is the invisible tax, I'll say that again for emphasis, the invisible tax almost everyone has been tricked into not seeing, far less being angry about. The same trick, a trick that would be illegal if any of us tried it, is pulled here in Britain by our own central bank, the Bank of England, and by central banks around the world, all of them in service to the Bank for International Settlements in splendid isolation in Geneva, in Switzerland, where none of us can affect its operation in any way. Our government, everyone's government, be it nominally democratic, fascist, totalitarian, communist or monster-raving loony, it makes no different, uses banks to put people into debt and then continuously devalues the currency by creating more money, always out of nowhere, And so making it harder and harder, all but impossible in fact, for anyone ever to be free of that debt. If all debt was repaid, all money would vanish. You heard me right. If you understand that much, you understand the money flow of the world. This stuff is hiding in plain sight, but so easy to understand when you bother to look at it. And I say that as someone who got a C in maths. It's easy to understand, but only if you don't look over there at the suspicious wildfires in Greece and the incomprehensible fires in Maui and the wildly lucrative war in Ukraine and a new COVID variant and the migrants being shepherded ashore every day and used most recently to displace students from their booked and paid-for accommodation to sow more fury. If you don't look over there at all that or when you do understand it, for it is, for what it is, distraction gone awry, but back here instead, where the pretend government is cooking the books and selling Britain down the river, once you see it, you can't believe you overlooked it for so long. I said most of the value of the dollar has been wiped out, so too that of the pound, the euro, you name it. The national currencies around the world are Ponzi schemes, teetering on the brink of collapse and held up only by malpractice and lies. The next step, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but when the people think they can't take any more uncertainty, will be central bank digital currencies. And here we get back to the monster, the elephant in the room that most neither acknowledge nor talk about, indeed that most don't even see, which is Agenda 21. ULEZ is part of Agenda 21, CBDC is part of it. Digital ID is part of it. Surveillance cameras and checkpoints are part of it. 15-minute ghettos are part of it. Cycle lanes are part of it. The devaluing of money is part of the softening up. The ever-increasing debt is part of that. The stoking of anxiety, of fear, of hatred of other, climate crisis and forever war. All about destroying the old and ushering in the new In 1992, in Rio de Janeiro, 179 countries agreed plans for a sustainable future for planet Earth. Sustainable is a weasel word in this context, chosen to seduce. Just as everyone would support a project to protect puppies and kittens from cruelty, so no one would say they were opposed to sustaining life on Earth. Sustainable in the hands of the authors of of Agenda 21, however, is dread-laden and means your way of life, my way of life and the way of life you'd hoped for for your children is unsustainable and forbidden. In summary, the way of life that has been described as middle class is, according to those pushing Agenda 21, unsustainable and must end. The usual mouthpieces of the mainstream will dismiss this as conspiracy theory but what is undeniable is that it's out there in plain sight. There's even a 344-page book available on Amazon called Agenda 21, Earth Summit, the United Nations Programme of Action from Rio, priced 11 pounds and four pence in paperback. What someone somewhere has decided is sustainable is to be made possible by, to quote American campaigner Rosa Corrie, the late great siren warning of all things Agenda 21, Control of all land, all water, all minerals, all plants, all animals, all construction, all means of production, all food, all information and all human beings in the world. Corrie pointed out how an unholy union of corporations, non-governmental organisations and governments is pushing ever more desperately towards a world in which the entire population is concentrated in densely populated cities. What's intended is a world of public-private partnerships... What the WES Klaus Schwab calls stakeholder capitalism, that takes all power and decision making away from the people and places it in the hands of entities over which we, the voting public, have zero influence, far less control. A person can easily sense the impotent wrath of Khan, we Sadiq, as he receives the daily reports of the popular dismantling of his ULES infrastructure. As well as a vast majority of his surveillance cameras being put out of action by citizen soldiers, God bless you all, the legal basis of his efforts is being challenged too. Worth observing that Sadiq Khan is being embarrassed not just in front of Londoners and the wider British public, but also in front of his pals in the C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, of which he has been chairman since 2021 I don't know if you know, but C40 is, according to its Wikipedia page, focused on fighting the climate crisis and driving urban action that reduces greenhouse gas emissions and climate risks. It's also in bed with proposals to end flying and shipping by 2050, cutting home heating, banning beef and lamb and ending building with bricks, cement, glass and steel in favour of rammed earth, what you might call the building of mud huts. Here's the thing. The future being discussed might permit existence for the likes of you and me, but will be no life I recognise as honourable or worth living. All together now, tell them they can stick the whole joyless, totalitarian, hypocritical, anti-human lot of it where the sun don't shine.
0: If you'd like to respond to this, please call us at 888-874-4888. I've heard a lot of talk about why the United States supports Israel and why we never criticize Israel and why we have allowed uh, Israel to in effect have the world's largest in effect outdoor prison where the lives of the over 4 million people between West Bank and Gaza are 100% controlled and not in a good way. In fact, people living in internment camps, the Japanese-Americans, actually had things better in many respects than do these individuals. And yet, no criticism from Congress, not from any president, and not from the media. Is it because of propaganda? Well, Noam Chomsky gives us his views now, in this clip, about why we continue to support, without question and hesitation, with an open checkbook, everything that Israel does, we seem to support.
2: Why does the United States support Israel? Well, there's a history, and a very interesting one. That actually goes back to uh, goes back a long time. Uh, one thing to remember is that Christian Zionism is a very powerful force, which goes back long before Jewish Zionism. In England, particularly, Christian Zionism was a powerful force among British elites. It's part of the motivation for the Balfour Declaration and for Britain's support for Jewish colonization of Israel. Remember, the Bible said, you know, and that's a big part of uh, British elite culture. Same in the United States. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a a, a, a devout Christian who read the Bible every day. So did Harry Truman uh, in the Roosevelt administration, one of the leading Officials, Harold Ickes, once described the return of the Jews to Palestine as the greatest event in history. It's uh, realizing the lesson of the Bible. Uh, These are deeply religious countries in which the biblical commands, so-called, are taken quite literally. Also, this is just part of colonization. This is the last phase of European colonization. And uh, notice that the countries that are most strongly in support of Israel are not just the United States. It's the United States, Australia, and Canada. The offshoots of England, Anglosphere are sometimes called. Unusual forms of imperialism. These are settler colonial societies. Colon- societies in which the, not like India, not like the British in India, say, of societies, South Africa was a little like this, or Algeria under the French. Settler colonial societies in which the settlers came in, essentially eliminated the native population. Also driven by religious principles, very religious groups, driven by Christian Zionism. Those are major cultural factors. There are also significant geostrategic factors. And you go back to 1948, there was actually a split between the State Department and the Pentagon in the United States over how to react to the new state of Israel. The State Department was was was, questioned, was not committed strongly to Israeli conquests, the establishment of the state, and was concerned about the refugees. It wanted an implementation of the refugee problem. The Pentagon, on the other hand, was very impressed with Israel's military potential the Israeli military successes uh, if you look back at the internal record and declassified uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff described uh, Israel as the second largest military force in the region after Turkey and a potential base for US power in the region that continued Can't run through the whole record, but in nineteen Fifty-eight, when there was a serious crisis in the region uh, uh, Israel was the only state that strongly cooperated with Britain and the United States and it won Plenty of support from the governments and the military for that reason uh, 1967 is when the current relations with Israel were pretty much established Israel performed a major service to the United States by destroying a secular Arab nationalism a major enemy of the United States, and supporting radical Islam, which the U.S. supported. And it continues right until the present. Uh, Right now, we saw an example of that just during the uh, Gaza, uh, latest Gaza attack. You recall that uh, at one point, Israel began to run out of munitions during the assault, despite the fact that it's uh, armed to the teeth that the United States provided Israel with additional munitions through the Pentagon. And notice where they were taken from. These were U.S. munitions pre-positioned in Israel for eventual use by U.S. forces. One of many signs of how Israel is regarded as essentially a military offshoot of the United States. Very close intelligence relations that go way back many other connections. And uh, the media tend to take up, to, to support the policy of the government with very few you know, kind of little questioning around the edges, but basically accept the policy. So for example, take another issue. Uh, take the US invasion of Iraq. You cannot find the phrase US invasion of Iraq in the US media, though it was obviously an invasion. A blatant act of aggression, a textbook case of, uh, well, that's Nuremberg Trials, called the supreme international crime, cannot be mentioned. Uh, President Obama is praised as an opponent of the invasion. And what did he say? He said it's a mistake. It's a strategic blunder. We're not going to get away with it. Now, that's about as, that's the kind of opposition that... Uh, you heard from uh, the German General Staff during Hitler's invasion of Russia, it's a blunder. Shouldn't do it. Should knock off England first. Now that's regarded as opposition. Now, same in Vietnam. It's now you know, there's now a commemoration underway, big commemoration of U.S. sacrifices in Vietnam. Try to find the phrase U.S. invasion of South Vietnam, there or anywhere in the past year since 1961 when it took place. Non-existent, maybe on Democracy Now, what I write, but way out of the fringe. And this is not unique to the United States. Take say Britain. Right now there's interesting debates in the British literary journals, like the Times Literary Supplement, as to whether Britain should finally begin to recognize the genocidal, the word that's used, genocidal character of British colonization hundreds of years ago Should Israel should Britain begin to face it? You know, you can ask that question in many places uh, the tendency of the uh, Intellectual community to go along like a herd in support of state power private power is just overwhelming and uh, we t- intellectuals like to think of themselves as dissident, critical, courageous, standing up against power. Absolutely untrue. You look at the historical record, that's a small fringe, and they're usually punished. The mainstream tends to be uh, what was once called a herd of independent minds, marching in support of state power. Nothing new here. Unfortunate. You have to fight against it. Not new.
0: Well, here's something of interest, isn't it? Pfizer, and uh, which made our vaccines, one of the three companies, with Moderna also and Johnson Johnson, and now they're saying they're going to have to cut back staff and and uh, do a little belt tightening because not everyone's buying their vaccines now. Well, wonder why? Could it be because they knew from their very first test of myocarditis of infertility? of uh, miscarriages at astronomically high numbers and hid that from the public. We only found that out because of a lawsuit. And now Dr. Naomi Wolf and 3,500 assistant to her are are breaking this all down for us and show us what a disaster this is. Is it possible that all the people that end up with side effects, millions, permanent side effects, over a million, and dead, over 600,000 Americans, Do you think maybe that has something to do with why people are questioning it? Possibly. In any case, remember, we paid for their research. They didn't. We then gave them a huge profit because every vial that the United States government bought, they profited from. So they had no cost on the experimental side and all profits on the other side. And then huge bonuses they gave to their executives. Oh, and now... They got indemnification, so you can't sue them for anything, or nor anyone, the doctors, the pharmacists, the nurses, the hospitals. You can't sue anyone. With all this damage, more damage than's ever been done in world history by any medication, and they made sure Bill Gates can't sue, Gabby can't sue, World Health Organization can't sue, all of them were part of this. Well, now people are, are waking up to the truth. Let's hear what they have to say.
3: All right. Well, could Pfizer be heading for bankruptcy? Is that writing on the wall? Now, you may think, oh, no, they they did so well during the pandemic. They have so much immunity. This is not an inevitability. Well, let's take a look further at what's been happening with Pfizer because, yes, it sounds dramatic. Uh, but look at the company's financials. Pfizer just announced that they will have to conduct layoffs next year what? in 2024 and cut more than $3 billion in costs. Now, Pfizer is estimating this year their annual profit will be somewhere between 58 and 61 billion dollars. Now, previous forecasts were between 67 and 70 billion. So that is by many order of magnitudes smaller than they intended. Now, you may say, well, I don't feel sorry for anybody with 60 billion dollars, but consider that last year, Pfizer made over 100 billion mostly due to the COVID vaccine and the government's purchase of Paxlovid as a treatment for COVID. Now let's take a look at Pfizer's stock for the last five years. So let's say that the pandemic and the vaccine rollout happened at this first major dip. Do you see that in 2020? Big dip in Pfizer stock. And then, oh, look, there's a vaccine, and it goes up and up and up, right? But look at where we are now. We're almost to pre pandemic levels with Pfizer stock price. Uh, but Pfizer is the media darling that saved us from the pandemic if you were to believe the media right Pfizer ended the pandemic how could they be in trouble well here is Pfizer CEO Albert Burla just this week responding to this revenue drop in an in a revenue call he said we are in the middle of the covid fa- fatigue the covid fatigue nobody wants to speak about covid correct Uh, So how
1: can they come up with a new name for it? This is what, you know, they're going to come up with a new name, a new branding, right?
3: Yes. He says we have the big anti-vaccination rhetoric. Okay. I mean, you know, if a company has really good customer retention, right, you don't have that kind of backlash. If you delivered a product that people trusted you and believed in. Maybe we wouldn't have the big COVID fatigue. Uh, now, in, well, and uh, go ahead. M- maybe they shouldn't have paid out such big bonuses to the executives.
2: Like they could have put that in savings or something.
3: Yes, yeah. true. That's a good Since point. It was
2: 100% profit that. because we yeah. right. did all the research.
1: Yeah. Or all of the extra billions they got from like the European Union, right? That just funneled all this extra cash to these yeah. guys. Couldn't they have put that like in a rainy day fund? We're going to take a break. And when we come
0: back, I'd like to hear from you. Our talkback number is 888-874-4888. I've given you three different areas to call in and share your points of view. I'm sure you have them. We have a lot of very aware people in this audience, very conscientious people, a lot of activists. So give us a call. It's time for you to talk back on these issues. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. We're trying to touch on topics that I believe are not presented honestly or objectively because they're almost always based upon ideology, some form of profit-taking, or political uh, inference. And as a result, we're never given the full truth. It's as if we're incapable of both giving the truth and also, as uh, we heard a little while ago, a lot of people have become a part of this mass psychosis of a common consensus belief. Whoever's in power decides the consensus. We, the scientists, believe this. We, the politicians, believe that. We, the agricultural experts. We, the nutritionists. And as a result, where's the truth? Well, we have to look for it, because it's, it's there. So if you have something you'd like to share, please do. We don't have anyone calling at the moment. I realize these are rather intense topics, and uh, but we're going to cover them. We're going to be a proud platform for them. I'm a big supporter of Lewis Hill, the founder of Pacifica. He believed that the radio should be a a forum for a voice for the voiceless. So, right now, almost everything is with a consensus voice. And from the liberal community and the conservative community, they're talking about, when it comes to Israel, or they're talking about Ukraine, they're not pulling back and looking at the larger picture and look at all the nuance. We will. In fact, because we have no calls now, I'm going to play one more clip, and we're going to go right through the BAI news. So at 55, BAI will break away, but we're going to continue right up to the top of the hour at uh, PRN.live. What you're going to hear now is called Normalization, War and the One-State Solution by Middle Nation. Uh, This person, you can agree or disagree, And the things that he says I would agree with and things I would disagree. But that's the importance of debate, dialogue, and at least hearing what other people have to say. Otherwise, you're just in an echo chamber. And that's not healthy. We'll go to the clip now.
4: If anyone thinks that there's a contradiction uh, between endorsing normalization uh, and being pro-Palestinian and anti-Zionist, then they've never understood what normalization is. And they have not understood what normalization is, most likely, uh, because they're taking a very superficial, uh, very emotional, and a very ideological approach to the Palestinian issue, and not a realistic, not not an objective, and not a practical approach. In the view of these types of people, normalization uh, means being pro-Israel. Pro-Zionist and anti-Palestinian, so normalization represents a betrayal in their mind, but not a betrayal of the of the Palestinians or of Palestine, but a betrayal of their of what they think is the sanctity of their ideological principle. And their ideological principle allows for only one approach to resolving the conflict, which is, of course, uh, an absolutist approach the only solution that they see is the expulsion of all jews from palestine by means of war i mean they want a a muslim army ideally the unified militaries of the muslim world but alternatively you know a citizen army of rank and file muslims from far and near to march on Israel, to march on Jerusalem, to march on Tel Aviv and uh, conquer it. That's the only outcome that they see as as acceptable, the only approach that they see as acceptable. Everything else is betrayal. And until this glorious victory comes, the Muslim world is supposed to shun and isolate Israel to express our collective disgust with the Zionist entity. They believe that this is our religious and moral obligation. Never mind that that adhering... Uh, to this so-called religious and so-called moral obligation has resulted in over 70 years of increasingly worse conditions for the Palestinians and increasingly better conditions for uh, Israel. And it has only seen Israel become stronger and more entrenched and the Muslims and the Arabs uh, become less and less formidable, less and less relevant. And the Palestinians have been reduced now because of this ideology, the Palestinians have been reduced to being just a political and a, a, a religious and an ideological football. Never mind that the Palestinians are the ones who have to pay with their blood and their children just uh, to uphold your principled stance on your behalf. And it requires nothing of you whatsoever. Meanwhile, you're over there in the West paying your taxes, you know, patronizing businesses, using products so on and so on and your money has been going to israel all this time so in other words on a personal level on an individual level you personally have already normalized with israel you normalize with israel every day but because you know boycotts are difficult to do uh withholding your taxes is risky it's dangerous you could go to jail uh contacting your politicians is ineffective you don't feel that you can really have very much impact You know, you have all the excuses for your personal, individual normalization. You have all the excuses uh, for why the only people who should be expected to have the courage and the conviction to uphold your moral and your religious obligation, so-called, is everyone else. And why the Palestinians themselves should be forever uh, the sacred sacrifice to preserve your principles. Well, obviously, that's that's no kind of moral principle that's contemptible is detached from reality is detached from realism or seriousness of any kind the Palestinians according to you have to have no realistic option for improving their situation and their conditions in order for you to feel righteous this is obviously deranged and delusional in the real world in real politique, Anyone with any uh, understanding of strategy, anyone with any understanding of geopolitics, anyone with any understanding of economics, with any understanding of the region, and anyone who understands the political power of investment will know that normalization is a gambit. Normalization is not capitulation, it's confrontation. It's strategic confrontation, whether you understand it or not. I mean, what you've had all these years was not confrontation. You might think so, or you might want to tell yourself it was, but it wasn't. It was self-neutralization. It was the Arab in the Muslim world choosing to have no leverage whatsoever, no influence, no relevance, no bargaining chips, and no access. And during all that time, uh, the Zionists could rationalize their need for America. Uh, and for the West to bolster their security, to bolster their military, to bolster their intelligence, to protect them uh, from all these hostile out atom-
0: of We're coming up to uh, WBI. We're going to say goodbye. And again, we'll continue. And if you'd like to call in, I'm happy to take your calls. 888 Let's continue with the clip.
4: Their economy. This is important, in isolation of the region. I mean, except for China and the United States, which are unavoidable anyway, because they're the largest, the biggest economies in the world. All of the countries in the region, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Syria, they have mostly other countries in the region as their top trading partners. But for Israel, no. Israel has no serious economic ties to the other countries in the Middle East, not serious ones, not significant ones which means that it is economically independent of those countries and so their embargo of israel has no impact whatsoever it imposes no loss and it gives them no bargaining power it neutralizes them from having any relevance i mean everyone is always lambasting uh, the arab rulers for doing nothing but you insist that they do nothing they're not allowed to do anything By your standards except a military invasion you insist uh on them having no other options no other tools for doing anything other than you know forming a military coalition and attacking israel which is the most asinine and adolescent thing that you could possibly propose and it has been the most asinine and adolescent thing you could propose for the last 50 years normalization gives the arab and muslim countries more tools to work with i mean ask uh an, ask an ethiopian or an eritrean whether investment gives the khalij political clout or not why gulf money ended two decades of conflict between those two countries eritrea and ethiopia when the coup happened in egypt and i remember i was covering all of that i was working on that when Assisi came to power Uh, he was set up to be nothing but a lapdog for the United States. But the UAE and Saudi Arabia pumped billions of dollars uh, into Egypt. And they brought Egypt into their sphere of influence, which is most likely the only reason why you could see uh, Sisi the other day lecturing uh, Anthony Blinken on live television. Lebanon is not going to be able to have uh, any president today. They're not going to be able to appoint or elect any president today that Saudi Arabia doesn't want. The UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, have been buying influence even in uh, Jordan recently which is probably why King Abdullah II uh, was also more or less uh, defiant of the West when, uh, what's his name, Olaf Scholz was, was there the other day. The Khalij has uh, expanded its sphere of influence to completely surround Israel and normalization would allow them to swallow it. The UAE has already been in negotiations. Uh, That would give them, that would give Abu Dhabi uh, 50% control, 50% stake uh, in Israel's most important gas, uh, the the most important company in Israel's gas sector. They've been moving in uh, to take over ports in Haifa and Eilat. The foreign minister of the UAE uh, had himself photographed in Cyprus meeting with the head of the Israeli opposition a couple of months ago. They said that there were going to be consequences on Netanyahu if the Netanyahu government appointed extremists like Ben Gavir. And Ben Gavir got appointed. And well, how are things going for Netanyahu? Not just right now, but ever ever since they appointed Ben Gavir, he's been having problems. Look, who uh, initiated the Abraham Accords? It was Donald Trump. You can think whatever you want about Donald Trump, but one thing uh... about him is clear and unique and that is that uh... he wanted to reduce america's foreign responsibilities and he meant it and he did it he wanted america to withdraw uh... from its international obligations and the abraham accords was a part of that you know trump didn't like uh... sending billions of dollars overseas to anybody he didn't like uh... endlessly pumping uh, money, American taxpayer money, into international projects that couldn't stand on their own.
0: Before I could play your voicemail and address it tomorrow. 862 800 6805. 862 800 6805. Thank you all and have a nice day.